0: Hey, I'm Steph, and this is Not Today. Hello and welcome. How are we all doing? I'm doing well. It's officially August, and I think it's a good month. I might be biased because my birthday is in August, but hey, I don't know. I think a lot of people like August. I don't think I'm alone in that. It's still very much summer. But at the same time, summer is slowly but surely ramping down. And then we go into fall. And I love fall. You know, it's a good time. We get pumpkins. No, I can't talk about pumpkins right now. It's still summer. Shut up, Stephanie. All right. It's been a minute since I've done one of these by myself, but I'm excited because I have a very good episode for you today. It is a story that I had never heard of, but it's probably one of the biggest stories in Australian history. I mean, Australia, let me know, but it's one of the biggest cold cases in Australian history. I mean, this cold case was unsolved for 30 plus years and It was a very big case when it was unfolding, Um, and then they couldn't solve it. Well, they knew who did it, but they couldn't pin it on him. Anyway, we'll get into it. But before we jump into the story, I did want to remind everyone that at the time that this episode comes out, bonus episode number 18 is up on Patreon. And if we are wondering what that episode is, our patrons chose to hear about British Airways Flight 5390. June 10th of 1990, the front windshield of British Airways Flight 5390 completely blew off, sucking the captain through the opening at 17,300 feet. So that's just a very small snippet of something that happens in that story. And if you would like to hear the full story, head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash not today podcast, and Alex and I will be talking about that over there. It is an insane story. We hadn't talked about a plane survival story in a long time, uh, mostly because I was doing a lot of traveling and that wouldn't be good for my mental health. But now that I'm firmly on the ground for a while, I figured it was time. And this is quite the story to get back into those with. So anyway, you know what to do. Head over there and you can hear that. But today we will be talking about Leonard Warwick, aka the family court bomber. And before we jump in, I did want to give a quick trigger warning. This story does contain discussion of domestic violence. But with that being said, let's jump in. Our story takes place in Sydney, Australia. Andrea Blanchard met her husband, Leonard Warwick, on a blind date in 1970. Andrea was 18 at the time, and when she first saw Leonard, it was love at first sight, and they fell pretty quickly for each other. The couple ended up getting married in October of 1974. Andrea was 22 years old, and Leonard was 27. I don't really have any background on Andrea, but I do have some on Leonard. So Leonard Warwick was born in 1947 in Helensburg, New South Wales. Sadly, he lost his mother at the age of three years old. He had a younger sister, who was five at the time, who ended up moving in with their aunt to make it easier on their father for financial reasons. Leonard ended up dropping out of school at the age of 15 to work on a mushroom farm so he could help raise money. And at the age of 18, he was drafted and was forced to join the military, which he was not happy about. He was in the military for about three years before he was discharged. Soon after leaving the military, he got a job as a fireman. And around that time is when he met Andrea. The two began dating, and then got married in October of 1974. And it didn't take long for Leonard's dark side to come out. He became very possessive and jealous while they were dating. However, when they got married, that behavior only escalated. Leonard became extremely controlling and even violent toward Andrea. He would regularly show up at Andrea's work unexpectedly just to check up on her. She wasn't allowed to do anything unless she basically got permission from Leonard first. He isolated her from her friends and family and told her she wasn't allowed to speak to them or have them over their house. He was also very physically abusive toward Andrea. She said if he didn't have a good day, he'd come in and start whacking. In 1975, Andrea decided she had had enough and she moved out to live with her father, but this was of course not going to fly with Leonard. So during this time, Leonard would show up at Andrea's father's house to convince her to come back. So she decided she needed to get a restraining order against him. That's how bad it got. That's when Leonard started threatening Andrea's father, telling him that he was going to kill him or that he wished he would die. And this really worried Andrea. She really didn't want her father to go through that extra stress because of her. And she carried around a lot of guilt because of it. So for that reason, she decided it would be better if she just moved back in with Leonard. Which is devastating. It makes me wonder, did she feel like she was the one that was responsible for him and she could deal with his outbursts and his violence and she had been doing it now for so long and once it started to bleed into her family life you know her actual family did she then feel like it was you know her fault and now it was her job to pick up the pieces and and kind of put herself in the line of fire instead of having her family there it's also so difficult because looking at this story from an outsider's perspective you just want to hug Andrea and tell her that she didn't have to do that she doesn't have to be with this awful abusive man and she should just run away from him but toxic relationships are so complicated and abusive relationships are so complicated you can't really understand what someone is going through unless you're in a situation like that so it's just you have to kind of not judge a person you have to just be compassionate which is it's just sad. I just wish that she could have not done that but she did and it's even more sad because it seems like she was doing it just to protect her family not because she wanted to go back to him not long after moving back in with leonard andrea found out that she was pregnant and by june of 1978 their daughter trudy was born the family lived in kazoola a suburb of sydney australia at the time And while he spent his days as a firefighter rescuing people, at home, the violence and control over his wife had only gotten worse. Leonard had very quickly become extremely possessive of their daughter and didn't let anyone near Trudy. He wouldn't let anyone enter their house or see her, not even Andrea's friends or family. On Andrea's birthday, her sisters and their children attempted to visit with a birthday cake, which only enraged Leonard. When they knocked on the door that day, Leonard wasn't going to allow them in. However, Andrea pushed past him and told him, They're coming in, which is very brave. But after they had left, Leonard got very violent. He had his fireman boots on. He stood on Andrea and stomped on her and kicked her. She tried to run and pick up Trudy, but she couldn't pick her up since her arm had been so badly damaged by Leonard's boots. In that moment, she was convinced her life was in danger, so without any other choice, she ran out the door and left on her own. The first thing Andrea did was run to her sister Judy's house to ask for help, and to tell them about the years of abuse that she had endured, because they had no clue what she had been going through. That was the first time Judy had heard any of what Andrea had been going through, and she wanted to know why Andrea hadn't told her all these years. And Andrea's response was that she had just been too ashamed. Andrea then went to her brother Stephen's house to ask him for help retrieving Trudy from Leonard because she was terrified of him at that point. Stephen went up to the door, knocked on it, and told Leonard that they were just there for the baby. All they wanted was Trudy. And Leonard, unsurprisingly, slammed the door in their faces. And that's when she turned to the family law court to start the divorce and custody process. And in this process, Andrea got full custody of Trudy. Leonard was granted visitation twice a week, and he had to pay somewhere around $20 a week in child support. Although he got visitation, that wasn't enough for him. When he would get Trudy, he would completely ignore the visitation schedule and show up when he wasn't supposed to or keep her for longer than he was allowed, sometimes for days or even weeks at a time. So Andrea's 25-year-old brother Stephen, who was worried that Leonard would hurt her sister again, took Andrea to Leonard's house and knocked on the door once again and said, Look, we don't want any trouble. And he was a very soft-spoken guy. He really wasn't trying to start anything. He was just trying to get Trudy back for his sister. But again, Leonard slammed the door in their faces. And again, Andrea had to go to court to get her daughter back, which she did. Andrea had moved in with her father, Leslie, and her brother, Stephen, who at that point was now a target for Leonard because they had had, I guess, multiple confrontations. Although Stephen's intention was not to make it a confrontation, Leonard was just not listening to the court orders about his visitation rights, and he would basically steal his daughter And when Andrea would call Leonard to try to find out where he was with her daughter, he wouldn't answer. So they were basically like nowhere to be found. She couldn't get into contact with him for days or sometimes weeks at a time. So it was terrifying for her. But point being, Leonard despised Stephen. And that brings us to February 22nd, 1980. Late that night, Stephen had finished work at Reeves B Workers Club and had walked home. Andrea and Trudy slept in the front bedroom together, closest to the front of the house, and Stephen slept in the back bedroom. When Stephen came home that night, he went to bed as normal. But after he had gotten home that night, somewhere between 2 and 4 a.m., an intruder came in, went to the back bedroom where Stephen was asleep, aimed a twenty-two caliber gun at him, and shot him at point-blank range. The bullet entered just above Stephen's right eye and killed him instantly it's believed the gun had a silencer on it, or something that muffled the sound, which is why Trudy and Andrea didn't wake up. The shooter then wrapped a plastic bag around Stephen's head and wrapped him in the blankets from his bed and carried him out of the house. The next day, it was Trudy's second birthday. Andrea had woken up and noticed that Stephen wasn't home, but honestly thought nothing of it because it wasn't uncommon for him to spend the night at his girlfriend's house. It wasn't until hours went by, and Andrea still hadn't heard from her brother, that she started to get worried. She also noticed his bedding was gone, which was odd. She called his friends, and no one had seen or heard from him, which is when she called the police. And when the police showed up, horrifyingly enough, they found specks of blood in his bedroom. Six days later, a group of men out boating on Cowan Creek called the police after they found a body of a man floating in the water. Police found that Stephen's killer had attempted to weigh his body down with 11 bricks that had been tied together with a rope that is specifically used by firemen. And if we remember who the fireman is in the story, it's Leonard. So when Andrea hears that, she knows it's Leonard who did this. But they can't prove it, because even though he was a fireman and the killer used a fireman's rope. They couldn't prove it was his rope. While grieving the loss of her brother, Andrea had to continue this awful custody battle with Leonard, because he continued to ignore the court orders and would keep Trudy longer than he was supposed to. Which brings us to April of 1980. Because of Leonard's constant disrespect of the family court, Justice David Opus said Leonard couldn't see his daughter for a month. Leonard was, of course, livid. And when he saw Andrea at the court, he gave her a very ominous message. He said, quote, you don't have to worry about Judge Opus. And she said, why is he going away on holidays? And he said, oh, no, you just don't have to worry about him. So that's terrifying. Which brings us to June 23rd, 1980, four months after Stephen's murder, around 7.10 p.m., Justice David Opus was having dinner with his wife, Kirsten, and his kids, Persia and Josh, when the doorbell rang. His son Josh told him not to answer it, but he decided to anyway. When he opened the door, David Opus was shot with a .22 caliber rifle. Justice Opus's family rushed to his side, but it was already too late. After Opus's death, a $100,000 reward was posted for any information leading to his death, Investigators made a list of Opus's clients who would have a reason to hurt him, and Leonard was among them. And when Andrea found out that Justice Opus had been murdered, she immediately told police that she believed Leonard was involved, that he was the guy who did it. The murder happened at 7.10 p.m., and Leonard had ended his shift 70 minutes earlier. Police searched his locker at the fire station and found newspapers with headlines about the murder, But again, no physical evidence could link him to the scene. There had been a witness who saw a man fleeing the scene. And they didn't get a good look at the guy, but they did see that he was carrying a long canvas bag with white handles. And under hypnosis, they described a man about 5'10", in height, somewhere between 25 to 30 years old, solid build, with dark hair and a medium complexion. Which actually was pretty close, because Leonard was 5'8", dark hair, olive skin, and pretty solid build. But of course, he refused to answer any questions from the police and refused to be in a police lineup. So this is kind of the kicker of the whole thing, is the police kind of know it's Leonard, and they are finding things in his like locker and then you know later on in his home that kind of point that is him like he has newspapers with the headlines of the murder and a witness made a description that matches his profile but there's no physical evidence that link him to it and i guess they needed that to arrest him for it so they could never arrest him and he refused to speak and that's his right The police searched Leonard's home, where they found a number of firearms, none of which were the murder weapon. At that point, it was clear that Leonard was the number one suspect in both of the murders, but that wasn't going to stop him. After Justice David Opus was murdered, Justice Richard G took over his family court caseload. And his family was scared. His daughter Allison was only 12 years old at the time, but even she knew that this was a bad call for her father to take over this position. Smart girl! She's like, hey dad, um, these people are being murdered and there's a connecting factor and now you're stepping up to take his place? Maybe don't. But what are you gonna do? I mean, it's a job and, and that's his career. I guess at that point they're like, maybe it was a one-off? There hadn't been that many murders? I don't know. It didn't seem that crazy. Seems crazy to me, but I don't know. Years passed without any other attacks and the paranoia began to fade. So people were hoping that this whole thing was over, and Andrea tried to give Trudy a happy childhood, even though Leonard was very much still in her life, but unfortunately, the nightmare was not over. On March 6th, 1984, Justice Richard G was at home with his two children, Allison and Stephen. His wife had been sick and in the hospital at that time. That night at around 1.45 a.m., they had been asleep in their beds when they had been woken up to an extremely loud bang. An actual bomb had gone off while they were asleep inside, and it had destroyed most of their home. Allison remembers seeing that her whole room looked as if it were a movie set. It was covered in debris. Everything was scattered everywhere. Her drawers and furniture were caved in. The hallway wasn't there anymore. But Allison managed to climb through the rubble and found her brother, where the two of them frantically climbed out of a window and went around to the back of the house, where they found their father on the back deck. He had been covered in debris dust and blood all the way down his legs. There was a beam that had fallen over his wife's side of the bed, which almost crushed him, but thankfully didn't. But their entire home looked like a war zone. I'm sure it was awful that she was sick and in the hospital, but if she had been home, she would have been killed by whatever beam had crushed her side of the bed. So it's a miracle that she was in the hospital sick. What a terrifying situation. And the kids, before they had made it out of the house, were terrified that their father had been killed in the blast because when he had first taken the job, like I said, they were terrified that something was going to happen. I mean, I'm sure never in their wildest dreams could they have ever imagined that a bomb would have gone off on their house. But they were scared that their father was going to be the target of a next attack. And he clearly was. Unfortunately, they were also collateral damage. Thankfully, no one was hurt. But I mean, this is terrifying. Right away, police warned other judges to check their homes and cars, and they searched family courts across Australia. They also, of course, looked into all the cases that Justice Richard G. oversaw. When Andrea heard about the bomb, she felt sick, because just a week before that, they had been in court before Justice G., so she knew that it was Leonard who was behind the attack. Justice G. had issued orders for the sale of Leonard's home after his divorce, restricted Leonard's access to Trudy, and had even issued an arrest warrant when he failed to return her. So Justice G., you know, although kind of did all the right things as far as all the shitty things Leonard had been doing, like he needed to be punished for all these things, but he was clearly dealing with a very unhinged man who was going to retaliate with lethal force. This was an attack on the administration of justice in Australia. Judges would make a ruling against Leonard, and he would respond with, like I said, lethal force. And police were on his trail, but they didn't have any physical proof that it was him. They knew that it was him, logically, but they couldn't pin it on him. Which brings us to April 15th, 1984. The following month, the family court at Parramatta was blown up. This was where all of Leonard's proceedings were heard. And again, miraculously, no one died in that explosion either. That bomb went off the night before he was set to appear in court. He just didn't want to go to court, so he blew it up. How unhinged do you have to be? This is truly reminding me of the movie called Unhinged with Russell Crowe. That's the man I'm picturing in this, because... If you haven't seen it, that's very much the energy that this is reminding me of. He's unhinged. At this point, fear and panic was spreading throughout Sydney because these attacks kept happening and also Andrea knew that she was not safe in this because Leonard was killing the people who was keeping him away from his daughter, which is exactly what she was doing. And in reality, he was the one who was keeping Trudy away from her because she had full custody and he would violate the court orders left and right. There was even one occasion where Andrea didn't see Trudy for six straight weeks because Leonard just wouldn't give her back. She didn't even know where Trudy was for six weeks. And again, she alerts investigators to Leonard's possible involvement in all of these attacks, but with no evidence, he continued to walk free. It was clear that no one could keep Andrea and Trudy safe from him, not even the police. That must have been so terrifying and such a helpless feeling. And he didn't stop there. Three months later, Justice Ray Watson, who had taken over for Justice G., had restricted Leonard's access to Trudy even more. I would be terrified to take over in this specific line of family court justices. I mean, it must have been a hard decision to make because that's their job, but... At the same time, there is a lunatic out there who is killing people. And it seems to be a pattern. And the police know it. How could you just take on these cases and be like, it'll be fine? They clearly didn't have the anxiety that I do. And you know what? Maybe that's good for them. But in this case, it's not. So on July 4th, 1984, Ray Watson was about to leave his Greenwich home at 810 when his wife Pearl opened their door, unknowingly setting off a bomb that had been fixed to it tragically his wife pearl was killed in that blast justice watson however did survive the blast after pearl was murdered investigators ramped up their efforts a joint federal state police task force was established and a half a million dollar reward was offered all family court judges and their families were put under 24-hour surveillance until it was resolved Basically, every surveillance officer in the surrounding area was in use following every judge, family member, and Leonard Warwick. They were desperate to find something on him. In the middle of the night, they followed him to a national park. And they found that he went back to that national park on 11 different occasions. So police went with dogs after he had left to search, but they never figured out what he had been doing there or where he was going investigators believed there's a good chance he was playing games with surveillance officers. And that's possible, but also keep this whole National Park thing on the back burner, because we're going to talk about it later. But Leonard totally would be the kind of guy who would just fuck with the police and go into the National Park 11 times just to mess with them. So, you know, that I wouldn't put it past him at all, but also we'll talk about it more later. So February 10th, 1985, police tell Andrea there was an attempt on her lawyer's life with another bomb. Gary Watts had just become Andrea's lawyer in, you know, her case against Leonard. And soon after, a man named Peter found a bomb next to his car engine as he was trying to fix, I guess, his car. Investigators discovered that Gary Watts had recently sold the house that Peter was renting from him but the house was still registered in Gary Watts' name. So investigators concluded that the person who placed the bomb intended to harm Gary Watts instead of Peter. Fortunately, it had been found before it had gone off and no one had been hurt. But shortly after, Andrea got a call from Gary Watts and he told her he wouldn't be able to act on her behalf anymore. And that really sucks because this is not Andrea's fault and she, you know, deserves representation. But also, I really don't blame the guy. And you know what? Andrea didn't blame him either. She's like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Because Leonard is terrifying and he's clearly out to kill anyone who is going to help Andrea or who's going to stop him from seeing his daughter. And that's so many people. And he's doing it in an insane way. He's blowing them up. So Andrea was like, yeah, all right. You don't have to be my lawyer anymore. Even the police were scared about their involvement in the case at that point because Leonard was so extremely dangerous. One of the surveillance officers said, look, I think we've got to worry because Warwick's sitting in the park watching police headquarters. And they said, a witness that I interviewed said he was looking for my address The police had gone around to their neighborhoods and showed leonard's picture to their neighbors and said if you see this man you notify us immediately so even the police were not safe in all of this because leonard was like yeah i'll just blow up you guys like this man stops at nothing and as if this isn't terrifying enough leonard was also threatening andrea's sister judy and telling her that he would kill her and her children The police had told judy that she was next on his hit list the most terrifying and dangerous man in sydney possibly in all australia and she was next on his list imagine being told that she said she would wake up to every little noise she was constantly looking over her shoulder and honestly i don't even know how she would sleep i would just leave i would get on a plane and i would leave and the police told her she should they said she should get out of the area Because clearly this man is booby-trapping doors and killing people in their sleep. You'd be dead before you even knew what hit you. And of course, while all of this was going on, as if Leonard wasn't busy enough, he was also stalking Andrea. He would often park in front of the house and watch her every move. He would at times show up at the house unannounced and scream at Andrea, demanding he have Trudy for an unscheduled visit. On one occasion, Andrea said no but Leonard grabbed Trudy anyway and started running with her. Andrea started chasing him, refusing to let him take her daughter away. In response, Leonard punched Andrea in the face, but somehow she managed to get Trudy away from him and ran back inside the house with her daughter and locked the door. And As Alex would say, Andrea has straight up ice in the veins, because this man has terrorized an entire city, literally blowing up homes, city buildings, whatever he wants, and she just faced him and took her daughter away from him, knowing full well that he kills people who do that. That's metal-that's also mother's love, but you know, that's also metal. She was desperate to get her family away from Leonard and his violence, and even with the threat to her life. Judy steps in because also we love sisterly love as well. Judy is being threatened by this man and Judy's like, yeah, I'll step in and help my sister. Hell yeah, sisters. Judy was a devout Jehovah's Witness, so she turned to her congregation for help. She asked her church to help move her, Andrea, and Trudy to a secret location hundreds of kilometers away. Sunday, July 21st, 1985, Greg Hahn showed up to drive the moving van, and he was from the Jehovah's Witness Center, and Andrea had done all she could do to make it a fun game for Trudy. All the while, she's keeping all of this lighthearted and shielding Trudy from all of the horrors that's going on around her. Trudy had no idea any of this was going on, so like, go mom. She also didn't tell anyone where they were going. And when Leonard figured out they were gone, he lost his mind. He made multiple phone calls to Judy's congregation, demanding to know where they were. Five months after they had escaped in July of 1985, Leonard still hadn't found them. However, there had been two break-ins at the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall. During one of those break-ins, the intruder had broken a window, which left blood on the carpet. And I was very excited to hear that. However, due to the limited capabilities of the time, investigators could only determine that the blood was O positive, so that couldn't be used to charge anyone, because they couldn't test for DNA. So, God, the 80s, what a time. Sunday, July 21st, 1985, the Jehovah's Witness congregation started their service as usual, when suddenly, a bomb went off. There were 125 people in the church that day, including 25 children. The bomb had been placed under the stage at the Kingdom Hall, and sadly, a man named Graham Wikes was killed, and a dozen more had life-threatening injuries. The same explosives were used in the attempted car bombing Andrea's lawyer had been a part of five months earlier, and it was only a four-minute drive from Leonard's house to the Jehovah's Witness Hall, which doesn't prove anything, but like, okay. And also, Joy Wikes, Graham Wikes' wife, had helped the Blanchards pack for their escape, so Andrea blames herself for Graham's death and the injuries that day. And obviously, this is not her fault, but it's just all very tragic. When the police searched Leonard's house, they found handwritten Jehovah's Witness phone numbers, but he refused to answer any questions or give a blood sample, so they couldn't do anything about it. Nine days after the bombing, Andrea was beside herself. She felt like she was to blame for all of this, and she also believed that more innocent people would die if she didn't just give Leonard what he wanted. So she made the impossible decision to hand over her seven-year-old daughter to Leonard Warwick. She gave him full custody. You really hate to hear it. I don't even know what to say about that. That's really awful. When I heard that this is how it went down and that she gave Leonard full custody of her seven-year-old, I felt like this. Ah! You know, because I can't even begin to imagine what that must have felt like. This whole scenario is unimaginable. Quite literally, I couldn't even begin to put myself in this place. First of all, I don't have a kid. Second of all, he was blowing up people and she felt responsible. So there's that mind fuck. I I mean, what? And she basically felt like if she didn't do that, it wouldn't stop. And innocent people would continue to die because of her. I mean, does it get more complicated than that? I don't, I feel like I can't really give my opinion too hard, right? It's not my place. This is just what happened. I'm here to deliver the facts. I'm here to give you the cold, hard facts. And these are the facts. So it was true. She believed that if she gave Leonard what he wanted, a.k.a. Trudy, maybe he would be better with her. Maybe she was all he wanted. Maybe all of this would stop. And actually, it did all stop. All of the attacks stopped. So, I mean... In some insane, messed-up, backwards way, she was right. And Leonard thought that he had won. And, you know, in a lot of ways, he had. He was one of Australia's most violent serial murderers, and the police knew it. But at this point, they still couldn't do anything about it. For many years, Leonard posed as this harmless guy. And if anyone questioned him, he just refused to talk. That was his specialty, silence he wouldn't speak, and it kept him free. At first, Trudy liked living with her father because, like I mentioned earlier, her mother shielded her from the horrors of her father. So to her, she just got to stop moving around so much, and she got to stop being in the middle of the fights. They would spend time together, and her father even got horses for them to ride together. But as she got older, she realized how controlling her father was. He constantly tried to keep her in the house. She wasn't allowed to see friends or family. This is sounding familiar. And when he remarried and decided to start a new family, Trudy decided she wanted to move back in with her mother. Can we just take a quick moment to say who in their right mind would marry Leonard Warwick? After all this, we can give a pass to Andrea because she had no idea. This was pre-bombings. But post-bombings? Everyone in Sydney basically knows that this man is probably the guy. And this woman's like, nah, ah. I love him. Okay. Okay. Anyway, Trudy wanted to move back in with her mom. How do we think that went? Did you say Leonard surprisingly didn't stop her? Because I didn't think that's how it was going to go. But he chose his new wife over his daughter that he blew up half of Sydney for. He was like, all right, I'm good. Which to me means that it wasn't even about Trudy the entire time. It was just about, I want to be in control, and I know that this is important to you, and I want to terrorize you, you being Andrea. He wanted to hurt her in the biggest way possible, and he did. It was never about Trudy, because the second he was able to replace her, he did. Like, what? This is not a man who feels human emotion. Like the rest of us, like what the hell? And he almost got away with it. That was until investigative journalist Debbie Marshall and Ross Colthart decided to look into this decades-old case in 2012. However, they were warned that this main suspect is still very much free, and they could be killed if they were not careful. Debbie Marshall even tried to interview Leonard, and he threatened her. So, yeah. But with the help of Andrea and because Ross Coldhart found some really compelling evidence and Debbie Marshall published a book on this entire case, investigators decided to reopen this like 30-something-year-old case. So let's talk about what Ross Coldhart found. He knew that Leonard had been going in and out of that national park. Remember I said, let's put this on the back burner. Now it's to the front. So because he had been under surveillance, Leonard had been seen carrying suspicious items with him in and out of this national park. Police suspected he had a hiding place, and they knew that it was supposed to be Jimmy the Black's cave, but they could never find it. So Ross Colthart talked to some locals who knew the national park really well. And with their help, he was led two hours into the park and to Jimmy the Black's cave. And that wasn't all the locals told him. It was also common knowledge for the locals that if you came into that forest, which was just two kilometers from Leonard's home, you could find, and steal, explosives. Okay, um, why is it so readily available, guys? I would love to know why people are able to just get explosives easily in a national park, In the mid-70s, demolition crews were blasting rock for a reservoir explosion project near Leonard's home. And supposedly, security was very lax. Which is ridiculous. And according to this local, on one occasion, he and some friends stole fuses, detonators, and explosives. Hey, King. What are you doing with those? Why'd you steal them? Can we stop? And the cherry on top of this explosive-filled cake, Leonard knew this place very well because his father worked in a nearby mine where explosives were very often used. So they found all of this out and then Ross Coldheart confronted Leonard and recorded this confrontation and then showed that to the police. So they were like, yeah, that's pretty convincing stuff, actually. Lead investigator on the case all those years ago, Kevin Woods, had never forgotten about the family court bomber, and he remembered the bloodstains that had been left on the carpet of the Jehovah's Witness Center before the bombing. They didn't know it at the time, but the attacker had broken in to plant the bomb. And that very well could have been the key to this entire case. So detectives asked Trudy if she would give a DNA sample for them to compare it with. And at first, she hesitated because she did love her father and she worried about betraying him. But she also wanted the truth for herself and for all of the victims. She said, people need answers, closure. Innocent people were killed over me. If you commit something like these crimes, you should be held accountable for it. I don't care who you are. And to that I say, slay. We agree. That man is a serial murderer, so he should be held accountable. And he was so with the advancements in dna technology investigators were able to match the blood sample with trudy's removing any doubt that leonard warwick was the culprit behind all of these attacks july 29, 2015 35 years after he began terrorizing the people of sydney leonard warwick was finally arrested for the family court bombings and murders Leonard had a judge-only trial, which lasted almost two years, and he actually pled not guilty to the 32 charges against him. But thanks to the overwhelming evidence and Andrea's testimony, Leonard was convicted at 73 years old and was sentenced to three life sentences without the possibility of parole. Which is fantastic that he was finally held accountable, but oh my god, I can't believe it took until he was 73 years old that sucks. But also the biggest shout out to Ross Coldheart and Debbie Marshall and Andrea for going after the reopening of this case, because without them, it would still be a cold case, even though everyone knew it was Leonard. So at least he was convicted and sentenced. And now Andrea can finally live in peace. She is still very close with Judy and her daughter, Trudy, and she hopes that her story will bring awareness and support to survivors of domestic violence. She encourages others in similar situations to get out of the relationship and seek help. She said, you've got to think of yourself. And if there's children involved, you got to think of the children's lives, which I think is a great message. Judy bought she and Andrea matching rings that symbolize their survival. And she said every time they look down at their rings, they're reminded that they survived together which is amazing. I also love that. I love that they have these like rings and they can like look down and remember that they are survivors. I think that's so beautiful. And this story was insane. That is the end of the family court bombings. Wow. I can't believe that guy got away with it for so long. He just had to keep his mouth shut and they didn't have any physical evidence. So they just never could bring him in on it. I I guess it was just because it was the 80s and they were like, we can't do anything about it. And also it was Australia, so I don't know how Australia's crime investigation works, especially back then, but my God. But even though it took an insanely long time, we had a good ending with getting him behind bars where he should be, where he should have been for a very long time, but where he is. So that's good. And a fairly recent development. I mean, this happened not too long ago. It was around 2015 that he was found guilty. So within the past few years. Oh my God. I was going to say within the past few years, but I guess I should say within the past decade. It's 2023. Holy. Oh my God. Am I old? Gross. (laughs) 2015 was so long ago. Ew. Okay. Well, on that note, I guess we should move on to a good thing. Let's have a bit of a palate cleanser. My good thing is that this week I will be reunited with a bunch of my college friends. We will be together hanging out on a boat and enjoying each other's company, which is awesome. You know, you can't really get much better than hanging out together with your friends in the summer on a boat. I mean, name a better time. I don't know. So that is for sure my good thing. Also, we're going to be making at some point lobster tails and Alex is going to be the one cooking it. And he's like, I got to perfect the recipe. So tonight he's making lobster tails. For me, because he's got to perfect the recipe, so I get lobster tails twice. So that's a really good thing. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed that insane story. And don't forget to head over to Patreon to check out bonus episode number 18. That story was just as insane. And thank you so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. Head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or something crazy that has happened to you or someone in your life and you'd like to share with us and possibly hear on an upcoming listeners episode, send it to nottodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is nottodaypodcast and a Twitter that is nottodaypodcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three, because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah.